Welcome to the Pelican Brief. I am your host, David Tatman. I am delighted to have back as our guest, uh, John Cuvion. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the show today. It's always a pleasure. I have to tell you that you are the number one hit on our podcast. So when you are on, we have more listeners, more followers, and more likes. So thank you for coming back. Uh, you always have great information on what's going on around Louisiana politics and elections. And I know we had visited the other day at the state capitol, and uh, you said you had some uh, new stuff. So, so what's going on? John, what's going on in Louisiana right now? So where we stand right now, I would say we're on the eve of the governor's race getting really hot because we still have a legislative session going on, number one. And typically for fall races, I don't think of the beginning of the fall election campaign until June, even though we do have one, two, three candidates who are already up on TV in varying amounts. So in a sense, you kind of, you kind of have a campaign going, but it's not really at full steam yet. That's what I expect will be in June. But the thing that is interesting to me, now that we have a, we pretty much have a full field because this late in the game, it's very tough to get in and raise any appreciable amount of money to mount a credible campaign. But the thing that's interesting to me is in the past month, we had the latest campaign finance deadline. In other words, if you're running for statewide offer off this, you're subject to a more stringent set of deadlines in terms of how frequently you have to file your finance reports. Whereas, say, if you're running for state representative, you don't have to file that report until, oh, gosh, it's well into September and or October. But for purposes of the governor's race, the second finance reports were dropped in mid-April. And two things are of interest to me. Number one, not only the trajectory in terms of each candidate's cash on hand numbers, but the burn rate. In other words, how quickly are they spending what they're taking in? Because right now is the time where if you're running for office, you really need to pile up as much money as you can, because once you get into the mid to later summer, the ratio of spending to raising is going to be entirely different, meaning you've got to really do your spending then and have fuel in the tank to continue doing that spending. Right now, you're raising the money to enable that spending to occur. Having said that, a couple of things caught my attention when I was looking at the campaign finance numbers. So... If we were to rank the candidates from top to bottom in terms of their cash on hand numbers, which is the all important number, Richard Nelson went from 197 to 280,000, which for three months time, that's kind of so-so. And when you consider that he's constrained by the fact that he is in session for another month and the next finance report comes out in July, basically he has to, to go gangbusters in that you know, mid-June to mid-July time period to be able to post some good numbers on the board. And by the way, that is assuming that there's no special session, which we don't know if that's 100% the case yet, because of course, there's still questions about whether the House or the Senate can come to a consensus on what to do with the spending cap. But Richard Nelson's gone from 197 to 280,000 cash on hand. Sean Wilson, this was his first campaign finance report. He posted 545,000 
I look at it this way. It's not a super impressive number, but he also has the easiest task of all the candidates running for governor, meaning not only is he going to make the runoff, but in my opinion, he's going to run first. So theoretically, he could be in cruise control from now until October, although I take the attitude that even though you have the easiest task and that still you need to make hay while the sun shines, meaning between now and the July deadline and then there's there's more in September and October, you need to be posting you know, better incremental gains in your campaign finance numbers. But right now, Sean Wilson's sitting at 545,000. So talk about his burn rate a little bit. Is he? And that's, he, a, and that's a good point. So when I looked at Richard Nelson's burn rate, it was 33%. In other words, between the December 31st and the April finance report, the money of the money he raised in that time period, and that's excluding cash on hand at the beginning, but of the money he raised, 33% of it was spent. It's average, but the bigger number for Richard Nelson, in my opinion, is only having 280000 to spend for a governor's race. Sean Wilson actually had a good burn rate, believe it or not. His was second lowest of all the candidates. His was 6%, which I would say is pretty smart of him to kind of go easy on doing much spending. It'll be interesting to see if what happens with that ratio once we get to the July report. But right now, Sean Wilson is is plugging along pretty conservatively. So because he has, uh, as you said, perhaps an easier uh, uh, avenue uh, to get into a runoff, mm -hmm. perhaps he's banking some of that money for the runoff? Correct. In terms of the ratio of the money raised that's being banked, his is the second highest. Okay. So that's, that's pretty good, but I would expect, when we're talking about getting into the July finance deadline, the, that he wants to be easily at 750000 and closer to a million in the next finance right. reporting period. Because I, see, I think of a million dollars as basically the cover charge for running for statewide office. Right. And $545,000 is not going to cut it. Right. But again, he jumped in the race between January and April. I'm, I'm cutting him some slack and grading him on a curve. Yeah. The next candidate, and again, I'm going from lowest to highest. Sure, sure. State Senator Sharon Hewitt, she went from, oh, and one of the things, too, to kind of add to the context here, when I look at the finest numbers, I also include the affiliated PACs. Okay. Because you really have to consider, even though technically there's not supposed to be coordination, you really have to consider those PACs as part of the whole. So State Senator Sharon Hewitt, who does have a PAC, she went from 625 to 669,000, and she had a 77% burn rate, mm. both of which are not the best numbers because the thing about it is she's constrained in her ability to raise money being a sitting legislator. And while having $600,000 in, in January was impressive, only going from 625 to 669,000 in three months, I'm thinking, well, you really need to bump it up a few hundred more thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you're, you're burning 77% of what you raised, eh, not very good either. Mm -hmm. In fact, her number was the second uh, highest percentage-wise of the candidate burn rates. Mm -hmm. After State Senator Sharon Hewitt, we're talking about Hunter Lundy. He is an attorney from Lake Charles who's mm -hmm. running as an independent. He's pretty much self-financing, and he has a good amount of money. He's also burning it. More specifically, he went from 1.65 to 1.8 million, and he had a 72% burn rate. So while being in what I call the Millionaire's Club is a good thing, the fact that you have the third highest burn rate at 72%, not super impressive, 
because one has to ask, where's all that money going? He's not on TV yet. So that's that's what I see with Hunter Lundy. While he has a lot of money, he's also burning a lot of it. Uh, State Treasurer John Schroeder is an interesting situation. He has a very good number. He's also burning a lot of it. More specifically, State Treasurer Schroeder started off in January at 2.4 million, and he only went from 2.42 to 2.45 million, and he burned 91%. So even though having a couple million dollars of a head start is good, the fact that you could only advance 30 or so thousand dollars, not very impressive, and then he burned 91% of it. And it is true that he is, he was the first candidate to go up on TV in a major way. The one thing which will be interesting to see if it was a wise decision is thus far he's been going on air in the Baton Rouge and New Orleans media markets, which is half the state's population. My attitude is if you're going to start burning that heavily, you really need to up your exposure. And so that'll be the interesting question going forward into the July reports is, number one, did he start expanding his scope of his advertising into the rest of the state? And number two, what the burn rate was. And being a pollster, I'm going to add number three, which is, what did those what did those expenditures do to your poll numbers? Did it notch your Baton Rouge and New Orleans numbers up, you know, 5%, 1%? That's going to be the interesting question for him because he's taking the same risk that Scott Angel did back in 2015, which was spending heavily early on. And while it did provide some short-term stimulus, a lot changed once David Vitter went on to the counteroffensive in August and September. So that's the numbers I see for State Treasurer John Schroeder. So he still has a lot of money, mm-hmm. but his 91% burn rate is the highest I saw of any of the candidates. Mm. Then we get to Stephen Wagaspak. Now, he jumped in relatively late, but he between him and his two packs, He posted an impressive $3.1 million Mm. cash on hand. I think it's about $900,000 for his campaign personally and another like $2.1, $2.2 million for his two packs. So that's a very impressive zero to 64 seconds kind of thing. And even more impressive is the fact that he had a 1% burn rate. Now, one strong caveat I have to add there. One of the games that's played in the political world is to look as good as you can when those finance reports come out. You want your expenditures to occur after the reports are due. So he's raising all this money and he is going up on TV. So those expenditures are going to be reflected in the July numbers and not the April ones. And so I would expect his burn rate, of course, to increase because he's you know spending money now. So that was a, it was a pretty big television buy, right? Wasn't it? That's a, a my very, understanding. Yeah, yes, like, I think one point seven million. That's what I've read. Yeah, and so. a reboot Louisiana, which was one of the affiliated packs, I think was the group that was doing the buy. Right. So it's still pretty impressive. And by the way, the same standards I'm applying to John Schroeder with regards to burn rate and uh, how it improved the poll numbers. That's going to be a question to be asked of Stephen Waggis pack as well once we get into the July poll numbers. Because what has to happen with Stephen Wagaspak is he's got to run up his poll numbers if he wants to dethrone Jeff Landry from being the other runoff contender. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Jeff Landry, we saved the best for last. Very impressive numbers. More specifically, between Jeff Landry and the affiliated PACs that are supporting his candidacy, he went from 7.1 to 9.6 million cash on hand, which is extremely good. Mm-hmm. And he had a 37% burn rate, which that's... 
I'd say in the middle of the pack. He's also recently started going up on TV. So the fact that you have $9.6 million available, that is very impressive. And I suspect that Jeff Landry is probably employing some variation of the same model that helped with Garrett Graves and or John Kennedy, which was they raised a lot of money early and they held on to it as best they can. But once we got into August and September, they turned the spigot up on high. And I saw the wonders it did to their poll numbers when they did so. Mm-hmm. So that that in the totality is what I saw with the campaign finance numbers and with the burn rates. And like I said, this this is really insider baseball stuff. But the important thing is it's kind of a statement into kind of the operating philosophy of these campaigns in terms of when they want to spend their money. And ultimately, you're judged, judged on results, meaning, OK, if you're going to burn all this money, what did it do to your poll results, you know, four weeks later, eight weeks later and so forth? And keep in mind that October still weighs away. Mm-hmm. So really dramatically different campaigns. I'm guessing, and I'm you know asking you sort of to weigh in on this. Jeff Landry has pretty high name recognition, Correct. right? So he's he's probably trying to create uh, more. It's it's really more about his positions and his image and so on and so forth. Whereas somebody like say a Sharon Hewitt is trying to build. Uh, name ID and name recognition across the state. So their their approaches are a lot different, correct? Yes, and, in, and if you're talking about, say, a Sharon Hewitt or Richard Nelson, where they have constituencies that are much smaller than a statewide constituency, like what Jeff Landry has as attorney general, you're basically just trying to get to square one, which is getting a sufficient number of voters to know about who you are and create a favorable impression. So they're in an entirely different world than Jeff Landry is. And I would argue that Stephen Waggispack, even though technically lobby is a statewide group, that's not a group that the average everyday voter would know a lot about. So Stephen Waggispack's challenge is basically the same as what Sharon Hewitt and Richard Nelson is, which are, which is he needs to introduce himself to the voters as well. Because once you get beyond what I call the I-110 Beltway, his, his Waggispack's name recognition drops off market. Right, and that's amazing because he basically was one of the cogs in the Jindal administration for eight years, right? Correct. S- served in a high, as a high-ranking official. So I would think as many people probably know him from that or maybe more than actually Lobby. I mean, in our little world, right, we, are, we know Lobby. We know who the players are in that organization. But, you know, at cocktail parties in, in uh, DeRitter, Louisiana, right. they don't, right? right. And so, uh, so th- that's interesting. So is there any idea from you about who's moving? Like, are any of the candidates, do you feel like growing, or is it really too early for that part of it? Too early. Uh, I think once we get to June, as the smoke is clearing from all three candidates, or excuse me, three of the candidates, which would be Stephen Waggispack, Jeff Landry, and John Schroeder, who are on TV right now, the question I'm going to be asking, and no doubt other political insiders, is what do their numbers? Because that's the kind of thing that a donor would certainly be interested in knowing is, okay, he burned, you know, just to use one example, 91%, and it notched him up one or two points. Is he there, he or she therefore a viable contender? And the cold, cruel, hard facts is that's the kind of thing that a donor would evaluate. Now, most likely they're not as quantitative as I am about those kinds of things. But in the world of insider politics, the touchy-feely kind of stuff does matter in terms of once the word's going out amongst the donor and insider community, this person's on the move or this person's stalled, 
once that seed gets planted with one person, it does spread like wildfire and it does impact donor perceptions of mm -hmm. someone's viability. And that's the kind of thing that will matter in those subsequent finance reports. Sure. Sure. No, I, I get it. And I understand that. I, I think it's uh, good information and good data. So another question, what about the regionalization of the race, right? So we're not seeing a lot, let's say Hunter Lundy right, right now, but that doesn't mean that he's not out there, for example, in Southwest Louisiana, you know, working, whereas you have Richard Nelson and Sharon Hewitt who are in the same parish. Right. Uh, you've got, I, I think Jeff Landry tends to identify more as an Acadiana yes. uh, 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 candidate. And, and, and then you've got John Schroeder, who's sort of New Orleans and North Shore, because that's where his, right. a lot of his business dealings are. But I mean, some of them are Baton Rouge centric because we're, no matter where they were from, you know, they're here now. How does the regionalization play out right now? So the way I look at it, it, it matters to some candidates more than others. So I'm going to start with the easy one, uh, Sean Wilson. So there's a Democratic constituency in the 30 to 40 percent range. It's fairly even across the state, but it is more concentrated in the major media markets, particularly East Baton Rouge and Orleans parishes. Right. To a lesser extent, Jefferson. Sean Wilson is going to corral that vote. Yeah. And I don't expect a major Democrat to step up to challenge him. So like I said, I think of him as a true statewide candidate in terms of his support. Now when we get to the Republican candidates, the regionalization matters very much. Now if you're Hunter Lundy, the challenge is, where do I even go to find people? Because the Lake Charles media market is not a major media right. market. So basically you either need to start you know, say garnering rural support, or you need to take a chance on the Baton Rouge and New Orleans media markets since you do have $2 million to do so and get your name ID up. So that's the challenge that Hunter Lundy is, is finding that sweet spot outside of Lake Charles to where he can grow. Now, if you're Richard Nelson, John Schroeder, and really Sharon Hewitt as well, all three of them have the advantage or disadvantages, advantage, depending on your point of view, of all the from St. Tammany Parish. So they have to they have to go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that's interesting about John Schroeder is he actually grew up in Metairie. Mm -hmm. that's correct. So having that kind of both sides of the lake base, plus being a statewide elected official, certainly doesn't hurt him. But at the same time, campaigning or excuse me, running ads in the Baton Rouge and or New Orleans media market, the thing about urban areas is they tend to kind of bounce back and forth as to who they support. Right now, to me, everyone needs to be going up in the rural areas and lining up support. So it's funny you say that. I remember back in the 90s, uh, now I'm dating myself, but I remember back in the 90s, Mike Foster went everywhere, right? He had, the, the for those uh, who are uh, regular viewers and listeners to our program who were around then, they called them, and no disrespect, they called them the trailer girls. And they would sit in a trailer and make phone calls, and Mike Foster went everywhere. And he was like in last place for almost, you know, it seemed like the entire race. Right. Uh, but he built he built his machine. And so that leads, you know, sort of right into the next question I would ask. And you may not have the answer to this. I know you don't have all of the answers. But who do you think is best organized right now? It's a very good question. Um, I would think that 
Jeff Landry, who I would say comes from more the activist wing of the party and has the affection of the rank and file GOP members, particularly with the state central committee, I think of him as probably having the most aggressive grassroots network, particularly when you consider that his career goes all the way back to 2010 when he was first elected Congress. And the challenge he had back in 2010 was he was having to run against a former House Speaker. We're talking about Hunt Downer. Right. We really want to date ourselves here. Yes. And he had to make it through a Republican primary and then, of course, get to the general. So Jeff Landry had to build his constituency. And that's, by the way, is on the heels of an almost successful state Senate run a couple years before that. Against Troy Hebert, right. Correct. He, he, he ran for the seat, came very close to winning right. in the seat that Freddie Mills holds today. Right. And so I think that he has kind of had the best head start in turn between his electoral experience and coming from the activist base of the Republican Party. I would say he's the best organized. And it doesn't hurt that you have nine plus million dollars to spend. I would suspect there's going to be all kinds of organization going on over the next few months because he has the time and the wherewithal to do so. Sure. So if you, you know, we did this last time and it's going to change from time to time. If the race were this Saturday, right. uh, what's it, what happens? What happens, I would say Wilson Landry and two possible people right now could dethrone Landry. And those two possible people are, would be Schroeder and Wagaspack. And I'm, I'm going purely off of the fact that they have a very robust fundraising numbers the question becomes for both of them is, can their ads catch the imagination of enough Louisianians to make the runoff? Because one of the areas that I think of as kind of the swingy area would be the more urban parts of Southeast Louisiana, where you have a more moderate-ish pro-business type of Republican policy, as opposed to more of the populist mindset you would see. And I've jokingly used this term for years, I called it the Cypress Curtain, and that is roughly around Whiskey Bay, the Whiskey Bay exit on I-10. Once you get west of that, and I'm talking about the Lafayette, Alexandria, right. Grocery Port Media Markets, those that that part of the state does tend to favor more of a tell it like it is kind of, you know, uh, populist approach, as opposed to the Baton Rouge and New Orleans media markets, which from what I've seen, gosh, going all the way back to the Jay Darden election in 0506 for Secretary of State. Baton Rouge, New Orleans tends to prefer more media-friendly candidates. Mm -hmm. So given that Jeff Landry has a strong head start amongst the more conservative slash populist wing of the Republican Party, if you're Stephen Wagaspak and or John Schroeder, you're thinking, okay, where do I need to go to get my votes to zoom up to the low 20s to be a possible runoff contender? And I would, my personal argument would be the vote-rich areas in East Baton Rouge, East Jeff, St. Tammany, parishes like that, that you, you've got to basically run the tables there. I don't think you can really compete with Jeff west of the Cypress Curtain. So, so, but a lot of people decide late, right? I mean, what's your undecided right now? Actually, it's, what's kind of interesting about the undecided is in every poll I've done going back to late last year, it's been about 30%, okay. which it's kind of middling. And, and so when you're talking about a 30% undecided, that's not a very high number, number one. Number two, some of that 30% is Democrats. So you're probably talking about, say, 20 to 22 movable Republican-ish voters 
So again, going back to what, if you're a Schroeder Waggis pack where you have the wherewithal to do so, it's like, okay, where do I go to get that 21, 22% and or can I knock some of the other candidates down a point or two? And of course, we're talking about Jeff Landry sure, here, sure. who in the last poll I did several months ago, he and Sean Wilson are both sitting at about 30%. Gotcha. So you've got one of two choices, either find a way to knock Landry down a few points more to, to, towards 25, right? or try to grab the lion's share of the vote, which is what happened in prior years when, say, a Buddy Romer or Mike Foster caught fire late. But when you're talking about a 30% undecided percentage, I'm not so sure that there's a lot of voters to catch fire with. Right. And one of the different dynamics we're talking about, too, as we get... I'm thinking way down the future now into September and October. Right. So you have two actors in the play now in addition to election day voters. You have in-person early voters, which has been steadily increasing in popularity since it was introduced about 15 or so years ago. But starting with the pandemic and continuing since then, mail-in voting has become an actor in the play. Mm. And it's actually competing with in-person early voting. Wow. Now, why does mail-in voting matter? Well, mail-in ballots go out far earlier than the one week of early voting we have. So what I'm getting at here is last year in, during election cycle, I was thinking, okay, for a November election year, mail-in mail -in ballots will probably go out in September. I was hearing stories in August of mail-in ballots going out. So if you're talking about moving the election date from November to October. Right. Well, could we be talking about mid-August, once the ballots are finalized by the Secretary of State, that all of a sudden those mail-in ballots start to go out? So in other words, if you were a campaign and you have the wherewithal to do so, I would argue that you need to start thinking of mid-August as your election date because the moment those ballots hit, there are people who are habitual enough or confident enough in their chronicness to where they're probably gonna vote it right then and there. Right. So that brings another interesting dimension sure. because when you're talking about the possibility of voting going on in August, that that kind of blunts the effect of any Absolutely. late surge. Yeah. So that's, like I said, that's kind of a new wrinkle that's being added because in 2019, before the pandemic occurred, we did not really have mail-in voting in, in a wide scale. It was you know, like three, four, five percent. But now if you're talking about it being like in the 10 to 15 percent range, because the pandemic increased mail-in voting. But the other thing, too, is the establishment of this permanent mail-in voting list, which once people jo jump on it, they say, oh, wow, this is easy. Well, now you have a constituency that has to be tended to and they vote earlier. So that's going to be an interesting dimension to watch is that you know, if you're, gonna, if you're thinking you're doing all your election activities the first week of October, well, you're missing out not only the in-person early voting, but these mail-in voters. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, anything else big right now you want to share with us, John? Well, those are the those are the biggies right now. I mean, the thing that I'm looking for is there's going to be polling that's going to start to get released as we get into the summer, number one. And number two, once we get to the next round of finance reports, I think that that's where donors start taking a longer, harder look at candidates because... You may be able to excuse poor fundraising numbers in January and in April, but when you get into July, I think the excuses start running out. Yeah. And if you're only, say, increasing your cash on hand numbers by ten or twenty thousand, and you're not, you know, doing gangbuster fundraising, I do think that you could have some donors are saying, "Wait a minute, is this person really?" Because even if you have people who 
the majority of them are not going to be quite as, you know, quantitative as I am about this. The overall feel is, oh, this person's burning money. That kind of thing I've heard, you know, ricochet around the political world before. Well, sure. If you're a donor, you want to be with a winner, yes. right? And um, doesn't mean that you're going to always give to the person who's running first in the polls, but you want to give money to somebody who you think has a chance of winning. Correct. And I think you're right. I think later in the campaign, you're going to see perhaps some money shift from a particular candidate to another candidate. And I think that's going to be a big part of it. I've seen it over the years. Interesting point that you make, though, about late surges. I remember the Romer surge. I remember the Mike Foster surge. And I, you know, it, it's it, if with with the dynamic of the mail-in voting, which I had no idea was that significant. And of course, I I know early voting is a lot bigger. I've been a candidate before. It's it's big. You right. you're right. That the target is no longer election day. It is the beginning of early voting. At right. least putting some effort into early voting, whether it's mail, you know, in smaller races and things like that. Right. So, uh, but yeah, it's going to be an exciting fall. Um, get used to seeing. Uh, Nothing but uh, gubernatorial and other ads, right? Because yes. there's a lot of other statewide uh, offices. And you know, the other concept too, when we're talking about late surges, I would say there's a formative period, probably late August to early September, going into early October. That's when voters are really making up their minds. So in other words, this idea that you could hold on to all your cash and wait until the last week, it, it doesn't. That's an antiquated no. notion. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, he is John Cuvion, and I am David Tapman. So, John, tell us how they get in touch with you if they would like to uh, communicate with you or engage. Certainly. So, I am on social media at uh, WinWithJMC is my Twitter handle. I also have a website, WinWithJMC.com, and John at WinWithJMC.com is the email that I have. So, all those means, and I'm a I'm a very big social media person. Those are the avenues with which you could reach me. And so the way you reach us, I think most people know it's going to be on the taglines below. But if you want to, uh, on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it's at PelicanBrief225. Uh, if you want to watch us on YouTube, you might be watching us now, it is at ThePelicanBrief225. And if you would like to email with us, it is ThePelicanBrief225 at gmail.com. Remember... If you have a good take, send it along. You may be mentioned on the show. If you have a great take, you may end up being a guest like John. Uh, we're excited about the following. We want to thank all of our followers. We have thousands of people across the state uh, who are watching this. We do not make money on this. This is all about information and education, and we're having a lot of fun doing it. And speaking of having fun, John, uh, we're going to get you back on, and there's a few things I, I would like to go over some of the other big races, yes. statewide races. Uh, I know we've got a lot of time before we get into that, but obviously a lot of those are open. And and I really want to get in one day into some really nerdy stuff like favorable, unfavorable, and those sorts of things, because you are such, I work with you in other arenas as well, and you are just such a wealth of knowledge. So we appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for being here. Uh, I am David Tapman, and that is our show. The Pelican Brief is an off-script production 